You see, brother, sister, you need to rest in the truth this morning that no matter how you totally blow it, you're falling asleep, you're denying Jesus, you're pulling out swords and cutting off ears, you're running away even naked, listen, he will still not lose ones that the Father has given him. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pilgrim Benham. I'm the lead pastor of Shoreline Church. And today on the podcast, we begin a new series called The Road to the Cross. We're going to be studying John chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. So I encourage you to open up to the Gospel of John and enjoy this message. Well, we're beginning a new series today as we continue our study through the Gospel of John. We are a church that teaches verse by verse through the Scriptures. So if this is your first Sunday or first few, welcome. We want to make sure you know that we study, we exposit Scripture verse by verse. And so the title of our series in this section of John, 18 through 20, is called The Road to the Cross. We're going to be studying these three chapters, 18, 19, and 20, for the next five weeks or so, and we're going to be seeing the circumstances that led to Jesus' arrest, to Jesus' trial, and I'm going to quote trial because it's a mock of a trial, uh, to Jesus' scourging, his suffering, his crucifixion, and his burial. And that'll, of course, lead us to Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday, uh, where we celebrate together the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I need to start this morning by letting you know that the cross and resurrection is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. That's the centerpiece of Christianity, and it's the reason for which Jesus came on earth in the flesh, God incarnate. The whole purpose for which Jesus came to live as a man was to die in our place. So Jesus was not taken off guard or surprised by what we're about to study in these five weeks. Jesus was not hoping for maybe a different outcome. No, he knew from the very beginning what was to come, what had to be done. A few verses for you to jot down this morning. Revelation 13, 8, Revelation 13, 8 tells us that Jesus was the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the very world. From the foundation of the world, Jesus was the lamb that was slain. Acts 2.23 tells us that Jesus here was delivered to the hands of sinners by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. I just want you to think about that for a minute, that this was not an accident. This was not a mistake. This was not plan B. The uh, uh, ministry Answers in Genesis actually has a, a fantastic quote. Ken Ham writes this on the screen. He says, think about this. Before the universe was created, before time existed, before man was created, God knew that we and Adam would sin. He knew that we would rebel against our creator. And in the wisdom and love of God in eternity, he predetermined a plan so that we could receive a free gift of salvation. In eternity, God planned for the Son of God to step into history to provide the ultimate sacrifice, the sinless Son of God, would suffer sin's penalty of death, be raised from the dead, thus providing, I would say, the way of salvation. Hebrews 10.10 declares, by that we will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see, from the foundation of the world, God had prepared 
creation for the cross. Just think about this for a minute. On, on the third day of creation, as God is creating all of the plants, God knew that one of these plants, as the seeds would be scattered over the millennium, he knew that eventually one tree in particular would be used and carved to become a cross, that his own son uh, would be crucified by the hands of wicked men on the third day. He knew that. On the fourth day of creation, as God's creating the stars and the other heavenly bodies uh, that determine our signs and our seasons and our days and our years, he knew that one of the signs eventually would be that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He knew that this particular star would be that sign on the fourth day. On the sixth day, when God created Adam, he knew that from his own uh, line in his treacherous rebellion, that man, that, that mankind, Adam, uh, would fall and that sin would enter the world and, the, and that this would mar his creation. He knew that from his own offspring, from Adam's offspring, one would be born who would crush the serpent's head and yet who would also have his body bruised. Later, when God curses the ground uh, because of sin, because of Adam, one of the results was that, remember, thorns and thistles grew up into the ground. Uh, that was a result of the fall. And God knew in his providence, uh, in his predetermined will, that one day these very thorns would be used, wrapped together by the Romans uh, to pierce the forehead of his beloved son, who would bear in his own body on himself our sin. So church, the cross was not a mistake. The cross was not an accident. It was predetermined from the foundation of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And Jesus, as we study these passages of scripture, was ready for it. He was ready for it. So a couple more verses I want you to jot down on the screen. Luke 9.51. To just kind of prepare our hearts for this series. It says in Luke 9.51, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He steadfastly st set his face. Uh, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 50, verses 5 through 7. Uh, if you don't know this verse, powerful verse on the screen, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced, therefore I've set my face like a flint. See, that's the idea here. Jesus set his face like a flint towards Calvary, and he knew what redemptive work needed to be done. Jesus was not surprised or taken aback by the cross. He was ready. And so as we study this series, um, we're going to be doing this series a little bit differently. What we typically do, uh, as we've been studying the Gospel of John up until now, what we typically do, um, I just want to explain for a moment why it's going to be different and why we're going to approach the passion section of the Gospel of John a little bit differently. Um, typically what we do is I'll, I'll read or someone will read the, the text that we're going to study. We'll do a scripture reading and then they'll pray and then we'll dive into the exposition. We're going to do little, things a little bit differently in this um, series. And so I want to give you a little bit of a background uh, understanding. Every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every single one of them uh, gives us a perspective of what the road to the cross looked like. They all have their unique uh, four different kind of perspectives. And so each of these Gospels are different in nature, content, and the facts that they include, and also the facts that they exclude. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic Gospels. Can you guys say synoptic? 
Synoptic, okay, it's from two Greek words. The word synoptic is from uh, the Greek word soon. It looks like the word sun, but it's the word soon, and it means together. And then opsis, or optics, which means to see. So it means to see these three things together, to have the same view together. So the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are often called that. Why? Because they include a lot of the same stories, a lot of the same perspective, a lot of the same uh, even wording. But then you have John. John comes along. And he almost offers a unique kind of fresh perspective, almost like they're on the ground giving you the nuts and bolts of the interactions. And then John's gospel is almost an aerial view, almost as if he's given us a view from above, a view of deity. And remember, guys, the gospels um, were each written to a different audience uh, with a different perspective. Matthew was written to the Jew. And so in Matthew's gospel, you have a lot of Old Testament prophecies. You have a lot of Jesus' teaching to establish uh, the law and the kingdom. So there's this idea that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And so you have a, a very specific audience Matthew, Levi, was writing to. Mark, on the other hand, is writing, he's writing well to the Greeks. And so his gospel um, doesn't focus as much on Old Testament prophecy. In fact, he's very quick. It's almost like the Greeks didn't pay attention. He's got a, a lot of details very quickly uh, and he moves through all the different life events of Jesus to show that Jesus is ultimately the suffering servant, but he's also, as a servant, Lord over all creation. And then you have uh, Luke, and Luke is a, a writer writing to a Roman audience, and he basically wants to give a historical, accurate depiction of Jesus' life. Remember, Luke was a doctor, so he's very meticulous. Any LeCom students here? Very meticulous in detail. You kind of want your doctor to be meticulous, and so he goes into this great detail, and so you have one of the longest accounts with the Gospel of Luke. And so some people hear that, and they go, well, see, there's four different Gospels, so where they're different, there must be a mistake. There's a contradiction. Uh, there's small differences, and that proves that the Gospels are false. And I would say, no, actually, the opposite is true. If all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are identical, and we read them and they're all the same, then we should be suspicious that they were all colluding. They're all working together from the same document, and they're just like, we're just going to share the same information. In fact, when policemen uh, are interviewing witnesses, if all four witnesses have the exact same literally word-for-word -word testimony, the policeman's like, somebody's lying. Uh, they've all worked together behind the scenes to come up with this, and so we, we need to know there's, uh, there's something more to the story. But just for a minute, imagine four different people are going to write a biography about you. There's four different people. It's going to be your dad, your son, your best friend, and your neighbor who happens to also be a historian. Now just picture for a minute, there are four different perspectives of your life. They're all going to describe you well, but from a different perspective, a different angle. Uh, they may have different stories or the same event from a different perspective. But listen, their differences don't mean that they're in error. Actually, when we put all four of those accounts together, we get a full, well-rounded view of an, a richer picture of your life and character. And that's what's taking place with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The four Gospels, church, are not contradictory. They're complementary. You see the difference? They work together. They complement one another. And, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. Uh, but then John comes along. And it's agreed by almost every scholar that John's gospel was written way after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Perhaps years and years after they were penned, read, embraced, and circulated widely. One person said this on the screen. He said, John 
wrote after reflecting on his encounter with Christ for many years. And with that insight, near the end of his life, John sat down and wrote the most theological of all the Gospels. We see the deity of Jesus more pronounced in the Gospel of John than in the other three Gospels. So, with that as an intro, what we're going to do in this series is we're going to include a lot of Scripture reading. What we're going to do is we're actually going to read all of the synoptic gospel accounts of each of these stories, and then we're going to look at John's account. And what you're going to see is how, how different it stands out and actually stands kind of above as a picture of the power of Christ, the deity of Christ, a bird's eye view. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the section of scripture in John 18 where Jesus is arrested. Uh, John 18 is what we're going to study, but to more fully study that, I want you actually to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. So if you're not okay with a lot of reading, sorry about that, we're doing it anyway. Matthew 26, verse 36. This is good for us to spend time in scripture reading. Matthew 26, uh, you may have a different translation, um, but I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. So uh, Matthew 26, 36 is where we're going to go, uh, down to about verse 56. And then we'll do Mark and Luke. So let me start in Matthew 26, 36. It says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples left him and fled. All right, let's turn over to Luke, or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. 
Turn with me there. And we're going to start in verse 32. And what I want you to do is now see if it sounds a little bit different from Mark's account. What does Mark include? What does Mark exclude? Mark 14, 32. It says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. Uh, the word there is tetelestai. It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, verse 43, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Verse 51 says, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. That's a different uh, look at that same story. Now let's go to Luke 22. Luke 22. You guys still with me? Luke 22, verse 39. Luke twenty two thirty nine 39 says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Verse 40, And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man? with a kiss. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of of darkness. Now, turn with me to John's Gospel, John chapter 18. What I want to do is spend a few minutes studying 
John's perspective of this same event, the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. Look at uh, John 18, verse 1 with me this morning. Uh, It says in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, what words? Well, the words that we wrapped up with last week in John chapter 17, as Jesus prays this high priestly prayer, he continues, and now it says that he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, uh, which he and his disciples entered. It says that Jesus crosses the brook Kidron. Now, uh, the brook Kidron at that time was a very small stream. Uh, but what's insightful here, church, is that the brook Kidron actually included the runoff, the drainage from the temple. So remember, at this time, hundreds, if not thousands, of Passover lambs were being slain. And the runoff from the blood would intermingle with the brook Kidron and flow downhill. And so at this spot where the Garden of Gethsemane uh, is located across the brook Kidron, Jesus would have stepped through or over a massive stream of, of blood. It would have been stained red from the blood of the lambs. And what a reminder, as this is the last moment that Jesus has his freedom, so to speak, where he's crossing over Uh, knowing as he looks at the blood rushing down this brook, he knows that his own blood is going to be shed as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now it says in verse 2, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew of the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Oh, okay, well this is a little more insightful. So this would have been a place, according to John, that that the disciples met with Jesus often, as often as they were in Jerusalem, which would, could have been as many as three or more times a year, they would have gone and met specifically in this place. Why? Well, it's a garden, so it's a little bit more peaceful. It's off the beaten path. It's quiet. There's not as many crowds there. But listen, Jesus was not going to the Garden of Gethsemane to hide. He was going there to be found. He knew that Judas knew of this place. So he's going there not to sneak away from Judas, but he knows Judas knows exactly where I'm going to be, and that's where I want him to find me. Jesus in this story is in complete control. David Gusick says it this way, a sinless man in an appointed garden was about to do battle with Satan's representative. The first time this happened, the sinless man failed, but the second Adam would not fail. Look at verse 3. It says, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons, okay? So this is a little bit more insightful than the synoptics. Um, What's happening here is it says in verse three, the band of soldiers, circle that word band. Okay, this is not, has nothing to do with instruments. The word is cohort. Uh, And uh, it actually, uh, a lot of scholars disagree what this could have been. Anywhere, we'll just give you the Cliff's Notes version, anywhere from 200 to up to 600 different soldiers could have been in this cohort. Judas has brought a huge group of soldiers, hundreds of soldiers from Rome. But notice also it says some officers from the chief priests. This would have been the temple guard. So this could have included as many as 21 Levites uh, who were assigned different spots in the temple. We here at the church have a security team. So just think the guys that guard the doors, the guys that are kind of watching out the doors of the temple, they would have rounded them up and there could have been as many as 20 of these Levites coming along armed with Uh, The other Gospels tell us they have swords and clubs. Here they have lanterns and torches, and it just says weapons. Okay, from Judas' standpoint, Jesus and his 11 are far outnumbered from Judas' standpoint. But Judas is greatly underestimating who Jesus is, isn't he? Remember from Matthew's Gospel, 
Matthew, Jesus tells Peter, remember in Matthew, he says, hey, don't you know, like I have a 24 legions of angels. Do the math on that really quick, uh, or 12 legions. Uh, one legion is 24,000 men. So if you do the quick math, uh, if you get your calculator out, 288,000 angels. Jesus says, hey, Peter, thanks for the sword. I appreciate you contributing that. But I've got a huge uh, a, you know, group, a legion, 12 legions ready to go. Okay? It's like your three-year-old bringing uh, their toy hammer to help dad. Right? Thank you for that. I appreciate that, but I've got this. So notice what happens next, verse 4. It says, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, foreknowledge, he knew all that would happen to him. He came forward out of the darkness and said to them, whom do you seek? See, Jesus is in complete control. He's not hiding. He's initiating the conversation. And so verse 5, they answered him, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. That they, by the way, includes Judas. Now, when I read this verse, uh, I get really excited. It, it reminds me of Psalm 27.2. On the screen, Psalm 27.2, one of the first uh, psalms that I memorized, but I still need to read it off the screen. Uh, it says, when the wicked advance against me to devour me or to devour my flesh, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. They're there to oppose Jesus, and they're the ones who are stumbling. Now, I definitely want to just mention this today. Someone somewhere suggested that the unbiblical practice of being slain in the Spirit comes from this text. Now, I would emphatically say, no, sir, and I completely disagree for a few reasons. These are Jesus' enemies, not his followers. They're not coming to be filled with the Holy Spirit or to be healed or to manifest behavior like barking or shaking or weeping. This is not a euphoric encounter with Jesus where they're anointed with power. They basically get back up and, and then continue to arrest Jesus. So listen, the whole idea of being slain in the Spirit is completely unbiblical, and I hope that you're not involved with that sort of behavior. So what was happening here? Why didn't the other synoptic gospels catch this? Why? Because John was emphasizing Jesus' power over this scenario, the sovereign work of God in this situation. What was it that caused these men to fall? Well, if you look back, it was in verse 6 when Jesus said, I am he. Now, this is amazing. This is so powerful. If you have your pens, I want you to circle just the two words, I am. Because in the original Greek, there's no word he. In the original Greek, Jesus said, when they said, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, he says this, I am. And at that moment, they fall to the ground. Jesus, in this moment, was declaring what we have been studying through the Gospel of John from the very beginning, that Jesus is the ego I me. He is the same name that God gave Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush when Moses said, who will I say sent me? Who, what is your name? And, and Moses hears from God saying, I am that I am. That's the same phrase Jesus uses here. I am. Uh, just a quick a recount on the screen, these seven times that Jesus used this phrase, I am. You can take a picture of that if you want and go back and study these incredible passages. We did a whole series through that section of John. But Jesus says in John 6, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. But not just there. 
There's also in John chapter 6, remember verse 20, when the disciples were in the boat terrified and Jesus is walking to them, he gets in the boat and he says, hey, be not afraid. Uh, it is I, but literally it's I am, be not afraid. Uh, in John chapter 8, uh, when the Jews wanted to know who he is, John 8, 58, Jesus said, truly, truly, I, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Not before Abraham was, I was. Before Abraham even existed, the father of your faith, I am. I existed. And it says they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy because he made himself to be claimed as God. What an awesome display of power with two words, I am, and they fall to the ground. You can just picture, can't you? Them getting up and kind of dusting themselves off, like what just happened? 200 plus men all falling to the ground and then looking at each other, what just, what just went down? And then they stand back up and notice who's in control. Notice in verse seven, he asked them again, who is it that you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> you can almost picture them maybe whispering at this time. They're, they're a little more held back. Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe they whispered it. I don't know. <laughs> but Jesus answered and said, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. You see, what's happening here is that Jesus is interceding for his disciples. We don't pick this up in the other synoptics. This situation happened because I believe John wants us to know that Jesus was, in a sense, sacrificing himself for the safety of his disciples. Uh, he had just demonstrated his power over this mob, uh, but he doesn't do it again. It's not like he continues this. He did that once to show them, hey, I'm in control here. I have power in just my words to knock you to your feet or off your feet. But then he says, if you're seeking me, let these go. He's interceding for them. He's, uh, you could say, bargaining for them. He's He's giving himself so that they can escape. They can leave. And I would imagine this is where they began to scatter. Verse 9 says, This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you've gave me, I've lost not one. Remember, Jesus prayed this last week in John 17, 12, in the high priestly prayer to the Father. He also prayed this on the screen in John 6, 39. He said, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me but raise it up on the last day. Now, I believe that Jesus was protecting his disciples uh, in this moment of intercession. But as they begin to scatter, one of Jesus' disciples pulls out a weapon. Look at verse 10. It says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. That servant's name was Malchus, so John gives us that detail. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, did you guys notice with me real quick that uh, when we read through the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, none of them, they all gave Peter dignity. They all said it was one of the disciples. But here, John was like, I have been waiting decades to tell you this. That was Peter. <laughs> I just want you to know, okay? I'm going to clear this one up. But see, guys, Peter was acting completely inappropriately here. Warren Wearsby says this, Peter used the wrong weapon, he had the wrong motive, he acted under the wrong orders, and he accomplished the wrong result. He's going after not one of the armed men, but after one of the servants. He gets him in the ear. He's hitting him from behind. Okay, this, is, this is an act of cowardice. This is not an act of courage. Jesus says, put the sword away. In other words, we don't advance the kingdom of heaven at the end of a sword. It's not through physical force or through politics that we conquer the world. It's through love. We proclaim the gospel and we dispel the lies of the evil one by heralding the truth. 
John Calvin said it's exceedingly thoughtless in Peter to try to prove his faith by the sword when he couldn't do it by the tongue. And we don't prove the faith by the sword, we prove it by the tongue. We prove it through lives and lips that herald the gospel. Uh, but notice what else Jesus says here. I thought this was fascinating. Jesus not only says, put the sword away, but notice what else he says. Uh, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get this whole backstory of Jesus of sweating drops of blood and weeping and, and crying out to the Father and the disciples falling asleep and failing him. And he keeps coming back and they're still asleep. Well, John doesn't mention that. John overlooks that and shows the, the resolute uh, conclusion in the heart of Jesus who just walks up and says, don't you know I have to drink the cup? In other words, he may have wrestled in his humanity with the overwhelming cup that he had to drink and the will of the Father, but at this point, he's resolute. He says, I must drink the cup. I've settled it. Not my will, but thy will, and thy will is to drink the cup, and I must do it, Peter. What does the cup mean? Well, throughout the Old Testament, the cup is used as an analogy for the wrath and fury of a holy God judging the wicked. It's as if Jesus in this moment is saying, I must become the enemy of God and face the full anger of his judgment. The cup that the Father gave Jesus to drink was the cup of his wrath for our sin. Because God is holy, because God is just, the penalty for sin must be paid. It's not just dismissed. It's not a mulligan. We'll just overlook that. That's not justice. It had to be paid. It had to be drank either by us or by a God-approved substitute. And because Jesus drank it for us, we then don't have to drink the cup of the fury and wrath of God. We, as Psalm 16 and 116 tell us, we get to drink from a different cup. It's the cup, not of his wrath, but of his salvation. Uh, Here's what Ann Cousin wrote in her hymn. I love this. She said, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head? Our load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead, did bear all ill for me. A victim led, thy blood was shed, now there's no load for me. Death and the curse were in the cup. O Christ, was was full for thee, but thou hast drained the last dark drop, tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up, now blessings drop for me. Jehovah lifted up his rod, on Christ it fell on thee. Thou wast sore stricken of my God, there's not one stroke for me. Thy tears, thy blood beneath it flowed, thy bruising healeth me. Wow. Jesus drank the cup. And he says, Peter, put away the sword. I'm not running from this suffering. I have to drink it. Now notice what happens next, verse 12. It says, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They would have tied him up. They would have bound him. And then verse 13 says, first they led him to Annas, for he was the, high, or the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So we have these two men, Annas and then Caiaphas. Um, let me explain the backstory. Uh, William Barclay tells us this on the screen. He says that Annas was the power behind the throne in Jerusalem. He was the power. Uh, he himself was high priest from 86 to 15. And four of his sons had also held the high priesthood, and Caiaphas was his son-in-law. There's a passage in the Talmud which says, woe to the house of Annas, woe to their serpent's hiss. They are high priests, their sons are keepers of the treasury, their sons-in-laws are guardians of the temple, and their servants beat the people with staves. Barclay says, Annas and his household 
were notorious, and it wasn't a good notoriety. They were notoriously evil. So when the Romans took over Jerusalem, when they came in and, and, and basically took over, um, they deposed Annas. He was the official high priest. And they kind of set up Caiaphas, a little more complicated than that. There were some different things that happened, but Caiaphas essentially became the Roman representative uh, uh, for the high priest. But in the hearts and the minds of the people, Annas was truly their high priest. He was kind of the, the power behind the power. And so um, what's happening here is a, is a religious arrest, okay? Even though they've got the backing of Rome, this is a religious kind of dispute that they're, they're arresting Jesus for. And so what we're going to see is a mockery of a trial next week. You can read ahead. We're still going to read all of the passages. But for now, notice what John picks up on in verse 14. We'll look at the, the, the um, trial next week, but look at verse 14. He says it was Caiaphas, <clears throat> remember, who had advised the Jews back in John 11 that it would be, quote, expedient for one man to die for the people. Uh, let me remind you what John 11 says back in verse 49. Here's that text. It says, but one of them, I don't know if we have it on the screen, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account here it is, that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, John says he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Back in John 11, after the resurrection of Lazarus, the plot was to kill Jesus based on this prophecy, this statement of Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas did not mean that the way John translates it. Caiaphas was an enemy of Jesus. And what he was essentially saying is, listen, if you get rid of this man, then peace will come to our nation. That's what he meant. If we get rid of this guy, then we'll have peace. But see, John sees in verse 14 of 18, in these words of Caiaphas, something more significant. And in his ignorant prophecy, John sees the doctrine of substitution. John sees the very heart of the gospel itself, that it's expedient for one man to die in the place of others and to die in the place for you and for me in a way we could never comprehend. Uh, I love the hymn that says, In my place condemned he stood. He sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Isaiah 53 picks up on this, where Isaiah uh, prophesies, saying, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds, or with his wounds, we are healed. An amazing truth, the, the doctrine of substitution, seen right here in this ignorant prophecy of Caiaphas. Now think about this moment, this arrest of Jesus, as Jesus is bound, he's put into rope or shackles and he's led to his demise. Just consider, church, the enemies that Jesus was facing in this chapter. I mean, just recount it for a minute. There's Judas, of course, and, and this is actually the last mention of him in the Gospel of John. John doesn't mention his betraying uh, kiss or his subsequent suicide. And yet the son of perdition was paid by the religious leaders to lead this cohort to find Jesus. And Jesus bring, Judas brings them to a place of familiarity, a place of fellowship that he could have had with uh, Jesus, a place he had often sat with Jesus to hear 
Jesus teach and pray and share about the Father. Jesus, uh, Judas at this moment was filled with and empowered by Satan. And he had a goal to make a last minute dollar off of selling Jesus out. In a word, Judas was covetous. He was an enemy of the cross. And I would just add to that that many of us in our covetousness find ourselves at enmity with the cross. Jesus, Jesus says, I am I'm resolute. I am facing, my face is set towards Calvary, towards the cross. Uh, I, I, there's no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. I'm, I'm going there. And yet, those of us who allow covetousness in our life, like Judas, can be an enemy of the cross, an enemy of the work of the gospel. That's not the only enemy. There's also, of course, Caiaphas and Annas. And they were behind this whole plot to capture Jesus. They've been plotting for days, if not years, how to capture Jesus, how to put him to death. And their scheme finally came together. In a word, the religious leaders were pretentious. They had pride. And listen, there's no greater enemy to your pride than to look at the cross, to say, I'm willing to trade my self-righteous worth, my legalistic righteousness, my, my works, my religion. I'm willing to say that that's filthy rags in exchange for the cross. And there's a third enemy, the cohort itself. This band of Roman soldiers, Levitical guards, all mixing together with this awful united purpose of arresting Jesus. And they had no idea what they were in for. They had no clue they're consenting to the capture and execution of the Son of the Most High. In a word, the cohort was oblivious. And you know what? I found that ignorance can also be an enemy of the cross. When we walk in absolute ignorance, I don't know. I don't know what the gospel is. I don't know what faith is. I don't really know if there's a heaven or hell. I don't know if there's a God. I'm just going to kind of float along. That's an enemy of the cross versus knowing Jesus. But who's in control in this moment? Is it Judas or is it the one who purposely goes to a location known to him? Is it the cohort or the one who comes out of the darkness to reveal himself to the mob, saying, whom do you seek? And then declares himself to be deity to these armed men. You see, church, Jesus is in complete control. Here, surrounding the circumstances of his arrest, trial, crucifixion, and death, he's in complete control. And listen, if that's true, if Jesus is in control, even of the circumstances of his death, then listen, he's in control. He's Lord over every difficult circumstance in our life as well. He is Lord over your family. He's Lord over your finances. He's Lord over your trials. He's Lord over your temptations. He's Lord over your suffering, and he's Lord over your sunshine. And even if we, like the disciples here, fail miserably, listen, he will still keep all whom the Father has given him. You see, brother, sister, you need to rest in the truth this morning that no matter how you totally blow it, you're falling asleep, you're denying Jesus, you're pulling out swords and cutting off ears, you're running away even naked, listen, he will still not lose ones that the Father has given him. Nothing in heaven or on earth would dissuade Jesus from the cross. A.W. Tozer says, with no side interests, he moved with steady purpose, almost with precision toward the cross. He would not be distracted or turned aside. He was completely devoted to the cross, completely devoted to the rescue of mankind because he was completely devoted to his Father's will. That's how I want to live my life. As we close, I want to invite our worship team forward and I want you to go ahead and clo close your Bibles. Uh, I don't have a pastor's challenge for us today, 
But I do want to close with a, a, a quote from J.C. Ryle. This quote really gripped me this week. As I've been considering the sovereign work of God and the power of Christ in this story, who's in control in this narrative. And uh, J.C. Ryle talks about what it means to have zeal. We use the word passion a lot today. I think we misuse that word, but I like the word zeal. Although we're not to have zeal without knowledge. Well, here's what J.C. Ryle defines as a zealous person. I like this. And this is a great picture of Christ, but my prayer is that this would also be a picture of my life and our life. Here's what he says. He says, a zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It's not enough to say that he's earnest, hearty, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, or fervent in spirit. The zealous man sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He's swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health, whether he has sickness, whether he's rich, whether he's poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he's thought wise or whether he's thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, honor, shame, for all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance his glory. If he's consumed in the very burning, he cares not for it, he's content. He feels that like a lamp, he's made to burn. And if consumed in burning, he has done, but done the work for which God appointed him. Such a one will always find a sphere for his zeal. If he cannot preach, if he cannot work, if he cannot give money, he will cry and sigh and pray. If he cannot fight in the valley with Joshua, then he'll do the work of Moses, Aaron, and Hur on the hill. If he's cut off from working himself, he will give the Lord no rest till help is raised from another quarter and the work is done. Wow. What a picture of the steadfastness of Christ to accomplish the work the Father had given him to do. May we burn for one thing. May we burn with the same thing that Jesus was burned with to please God, to bring him glory, to look ahead to the cross. May we have the cross in our sight. May we pursue it no matter what obstacle comes our way. Amen. Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is our righteousness, wisdom, and redemption. We pray, Lord, that as we sing this song, we would be reminded that it is all in Jesus that we have salvation. We thank you for how you've revealed yourself to us in this text. And we pray now as we worship that you would uh, allow us to see Jesus lifted up. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.